At Fidelity, value is automatic, starting with the rate you can get on your cash when you open a new retail brokerage account. Learn more at fidelity.com slash trading. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE SIPC. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. I people make friends just trying to make it some money. My job It's not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Every now and then, you get a conference call that captures the whole panoply of what's going on right now and what's going wrong in the business world. And that's what Dick's Sporting Good, of all things, Dick's Sporting Goods, it gave us that today. And I think it's worth trying to learn from what went awry at this major national retailer. And i got to tell you, this stock lost 11% of its value in one day, and that makes me think, stop, teach, context. Before we get to Dick's, though, I do need to say something about the broader action. How do we end up with a mixed session where the Dow slipped 96 points, the S&P advanced 0.30%, NASDAQ gained 0.4%? It simple. It was all about Boeing. The aerospace titan got slammed again today, down 6%, after a host of international airlines grounded the 737 MAX 8 line of planes that have been involved in two separate but seemingly similar crashes. Because the Dow Jones Industrial Average is heavily weighted towards Boeing, this action distorts the whole index. I think Boeing's in a tough position. The company can't find anything wrong. The FAA can't find anything wrong. Yet country after country is grounding one of their best-selling planes, understandably. I don't have any easy solutions here. Boeing's been through many difficult times, though, before, and they've always come out just fine. Hesitate to recommend it right here, given that we don't know if there's going to be another shoe to drop. But even if Boeing's stock is too risky, there are other stocks that are worth buying right here, right now. And the best way to identify them is to get your hands dirty. It's the nitty-gritty. It's what I call the craft the craft is the homework, like listening to the Dick's Sporting Goods conference call, even if Dick's isn't one of the stocks you want to buy. That's why we're going to explore the craft tonight. I think it can make you a lot more money than just saying, hey, the retail sales or the Fed or whatever. To set the stage here, Dick's reported an okay quarter, not great, not bad, but it gave a murky outlook. Just judging by the hideous decline in the stock, though, you think that Dick's was incredibly gloomy about the state of the consumer and its own prospects. This is what's so important, people. They weren't. They weren't not at all. Consumers are still spending a lot of money on supporting goods. The problem is where they're spending it. And they're spending the money online. Over the past year, Dix has seen its online business grow from 19 to 23%. And while there were issues that distorted the website's performance last year, it's clear that digital is the future. I remember 17 years ago when Dix came public. I went to see them right when they came public. It was a radical concept, a big box store for all things sport. Stock rapidly went from a split-adjusted three bucks all the way to 34 in only five years. People, this was one of the greatest growth stocks of the era. Then over the next nine years, it ran up to 62 bucks. But as of today, it is round trip. It's back to 34. What caused that multi-year weakness for what was definitely a, a revolutionary store at the time? Have people lost interest in sporting goods, including apparel? No, absolutely not. Does Dick suddenly have more brick-and-mortar competition? No. Actually, in fact, its number one competitor, Sports Authority, that place closed all of its locations a little less than two years ago. Boom, it was one of those just liquidations. So then what happened? 
Well, you can probably guess where this is all going, right? It's Amazon. Amazon happened. Much of what Dick sells can be also bought from Amazon, not the private label merchandise and not some of their special Nikes or, or certainly their outdoor and fitness equipment. They do quite well in those. Those posted strong year over year sales. That's something Dick's excels at. Remember, this is a good company, people. I am not talking about some joker. This is not Sears. Dix is the best at what it does. But just about everything else that they sell you can get on Amazon. That means Dix needs to spend even more money building out its own omnichannel presence while also suffering from lower gross margins because competition from Amazon always puts pressure on your pricing. Dix knows that it constantly needs to update its website because that's what Amazon does. That costs money. So what happened? Management dropped the bomb that has destroyed so many other retail stocks during this particularly difficult period. They told us this morning that they need to spend to keep up with the competition. Yep, it's the dirtiest word in the English language when it comes to the stock market. They have to invest. And money managers, they hate when they hear that a company has to invest, particularly when it means building out a dedicated e-commerce fulfillment capability. And those who fall back, they know, never catch up. There's no choice but to do it, though, if you're a retailer. And it's so expensive that it ruins your gross margins, even if you come out on top. As Lauren Hobart, the earnest president of Dix, explained, and I quote, there's a big opportunity to continue improving our online experiences to faster, more reliable delivery, end quote. But to do this, she says, we're investing heavily in our fulfillment capabilities, end quote. To me, that's expensive without a clear payoff. Hobart goes on to tell us that Dix needs to invest in robotics, robotics to drive automation in order to optimize its cost per shipment, something that almost represents a pyrrhic victory when you think about the firepower that Amazon can bring to bear with its phenomenal web services business. Dix is supposed to be a company that knows sporting goods. They know baseball bats, Air Jordans, not robotics, for heaven's sake. As Hobart says, though, Dix has no choice but to continue to, and I quote, increase our investments in technology, talent, and capabilities to make the shopping experience easier and more convenient for all athletes, regardless of when, where, or how they shop us. Ugh. So Dix has to keep plowing money into the most expensive, least rewarding channel to keep up with Amazon, a company with much lower expenses. It gets worse. What does Dix have to do to drum up more customers? Here's how they put it. Quote, we also work closely in partnership with industry leaders, Google and Facebook, to dial up digital marketing and drive increased traffic, end quote. Oh, so it's not enough to have to get your head beat by Amazon. Now you got to fork over huge amounts of money to Facebook and Google to even reach the consumer because you can't just rely on people going to your own homepage. That isn't how people find anything anymore. They Google it. Hey, no wonder Senator Elizabeth Warren's calling for the breakup of Amazon. It has all the tools it needs to bring, bring you in without even having to give him money to, to Facebook and Google. Wow. What else is Dick's having trouble making money at per sale? Well, Lee Blitzky, the chief financial officer, says in this incredible conference call, is the decline in gross margins was driven by higher shipping, fulfillment, and freight costs. Again, to keep up with Amazon, you have to get this stuff to the consumer as quickly and as cheaply as possible. It's certainly as cheap as Amazon does. And that means you have to eat costs, including those pesky trucking costs, which just get more and more expensive, don't they? Finally, Hobart tells us that Dix needs to invest in the stores themselves and their employees so they can offer better service, particularly versus the web. Again, that means higher store costs and more deadweight training of the individuals who work there. And if the customer doesn't come in, the company also has to spend money on its mobile site. 
Now, we do get some worthwhile investment ideas. Again, not from Dick's, but not about Dick's. We know that Under Armour had a difficult quarter. It continues to be difficult, according to Blitzky, in case you're wondering why that stock's been languishing lately, although they did say that the future's a little better for them. Nike's just on fire on the call throughout. That's a narrative that goes throughout Dick's quarter. If that stock ever comes down, you just got to buy it. What can I tell you? You just got to buy it. And CEO Ed Stack, again, I met him when this company came public. He's the bright light in the sporting goods business. He told us that he believes rents will continue to go down for shopping centers, in part because of closures by Sears and JCPenney and a number of other retailers, he says, that are probably going to continue to close stores. Now, to me, that says don't buy these mall and shopping center real estate investment trusts, even if they have those really high yields. Don't get drawn in. So here's the bottom line after reading this classic, okay, this manual of how to think about the web and retail, the net, everything we talk about, fang. Well, Dick's Sporting Goods Conference Call says one thing. You want to buy the stocks of Amazon, Facebook, Alphabet, Nike, or maybe perhaps Adobe and Salesforce to ensure that the customer likes the experience members to come back. Maybe you want to invest in the robotics that Amazon has, which, by the way, are made by Honeywell. And as for Dick's itself, I think you got to stay away. Because right now, it's just too hard to be a brick-and-mortar retailer if you have too much commodity merchandise that can be bought more cheaply and conveniently via Amazon Prime. Scott in Florida. Scott. Hi, Jim. It's a pleasure to get a chance to speak with you. Great to speak um, with I you. I was calling. Um, I watched you interview on February 14th the CEO of Twilio and Syngrid. And I love the dialogue that you had with both CEOs. So I entered the next day at 107. And today it broke through its all-time high at 126. And my question to you is, do you feel, do you still, do, do I take profit off the table or is it go long uh, on You know, I got still? this conference call on Thursday, 1130 for actualersplus.com club members. And I have been just kicking myself. I pushed Twilio, I pushed them, but you know, you got it. You got it right. Do not sell Twilio. Do not sell Twilio. That is not a trade. That is an investment. Let's go to Jim in New Jersey. Jim. Hey, the Pope of Prosperity. How you doing today? Listen, big question. Sure. Uh, Shinari Energy, you've been following that, and you have admiration for it for the last 20 years. Absolutely. I've loved Shinari since the show began. Yes. Oh, what, what do I think of it here? I still like it. I was doing a lot of work on Tellurian, by the way, which is the one that the next one that Sharif Suki had, but I, I like that. And again, I want to just—I mean, people probably say, "Jim, you're being a pig on Twilio." I am not being a pig. I think that you had to deal with Jeff Lawson as a visionary. The company's only 15 billion. Get this—I think you could go to 30. Yep. The world of Dicks gave us plenty to learn about what's happening in the overall market. And now you know what's going wrong with brick and mortar, but what's going right with fat. Oh, well, everybody, tonight there's a 5G revolution happening in this country, and VMware could help telco companies change the game. I'm talking one of the top execs to find out how. Then for years, the super freaking strong dollars take it hold in the market. But if the value of the greenback drops, could it be good news for the rest of the economy? I'm going off the charts to find out. And after today's drop, is Koopa still a cloud prince? Or has it become more of a pauper? Great book, by the way. I'm talking with the CEO. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. 
Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. At Fidelity, we work to get you a better price for every trade. See how much we saved investors last year at fidelity.com slash price improvement. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE SIPC. past couple weeks, things have gotten a lot more difficult for some of the cloud stocks. Yet we got this pattern. One of the Cloud Kings reports a great quarter, then it sells off dramatically. But there are exceptions. Some of the Cloud Kings have held up a lot better than others. And the best, VMware, which is still up more than 25% for the year. These guys pioneered the virtualization software that makes data centers so powerful, lets you run multiple virtual computers on a single server. Hence why the company's now become a major player in the cloud infrastructure space. When VMware reported on the last night of February, they delivered a rock-solid quarter, and their stock actually managed to rally the next day. All right, so it's pulled back a few bucks from those highs. It's still higher than where it was before the quarter, making VMware the most resilient of our Cloud Kings, at least at the present moment. Does that mean it can continue to go higher? Why don't we check in with Sanjay Poonin. He's VMware's chief operating officer of customer operations to learn more about how his company's doing and where it is headed. Mr. Poonin, welcome back to Man Money. Jim, Good to see you, sir. Thank, Thank you. you Jim. Nice great to be on the show again. Okay, so uh, there's a great note out today uh, from Deutsche Bank. It's talking about, I mean, look, you've had unbelievable numbers. This is one of the best quarters ever, an acceleration. And he says, now VMware's in a two-horse race with Nutanix. Now, that's a competitor, but when I saw Nutanix's quarter versus yours, I questioned whether it's a two-horse race, and I figured maybe you'd give me a little, uh, let's say, skinny on what you think of the race. Thank you, Jim. We had a great quarter. You know, 21% product growth, 16% revenue growth. It was fantastic. And we're beginning to see, I think, some separation between winners and, you know, some who are not doing so well. You saw the results of VMware, Microsoft, Amazon, Dell, pretty good. All good. Some of our competitors, not so good. And I think one of the analysts had it pretty well down packed. They ranked a lot of the companies that work on software-defined infrastructure, ranked VMware number one, Microsoft number two, Red Hat number three, and Nutanix number four. And I talked on your show last year about building a data center is like baking a cake. You need the flour, you need the eggs, right. you need the sugar, right. you need the icing. It's very hard to build a data center with just the eggs, which some of our competitors just have one, one of those products. So what we've really focused on is building the, big, the best software-defined infrastructure, and the results are starting to show. Well, I do think, and I wanted you to explain, people say, well, Jim, can you go to, is there equivalent of Home Depot where you can go and buy VMware? It's not really that simple, is it? Well, there's a perception sometimes that any of this infrastructure sort of commoditizes. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is when you put together compute storage networking management, that data center, and focus on the three C's, cost, complexity, and carbon, we have been, because, you know, 40% of the homes in the U.S. energy is how much we literally save in terms of the compute okay. uh, impact we've had. But storage virtualization has a huge ROI. It pays off often Jordan. for the entire, um, um, you know, network virtualization has also been very big impact. And then the big part that pulls it together is our automation. And it's a lot like driving a self-driving car. A self-driving data center has all of that automation, analytics, and AI that just, you know, the same way that you drive a car today, you like the GPS, you like the self-driving capabilities of it, we want a data center to be so automated and so smart and intelligent. Now, we had Andy Jackson recently from Amazon Web Services, another partner, and you guys were classmates at business school. Tell us how you relate to that, because what I think that they're best in show. Yeah, we have a very special relationship with AWS. It's in the second or third year 
uh, of partnership. And what we've done is we've taken that same data center capabilities I described, compute storage networking, and built it natively into Amazon. We call that VMware Cloud and Amazon. And now that's taking off. We had, we announced in our earnings call, a big deal, over 20 million. We have many uh, companies and also in the federal sector. So we're seeing some of our large customers now look at this as a way by which they can elastically expand and contract what they need to do in the cloud with the best benefits of the VMware tools they've known in the data center, but now working in the Amazon cloud. It's a very special relationship. We treat them as our preferred cloud vendor. They're obviously number one in the cloud space. Right. And that partnership is going extremely well. Well, what I thought was interesting was that I, I regarded that as being the primary bit of uh, of your company until the mobile, the MWC, the Mobile World Congress, where you're paired with somebody who's in 22 countries. You're paired with Vodafone. Vodafone. Uh, that's a fabulous uh, client. How did that come together? Yeah, so what Vodafone looked at is you think about the transition from 4G to 5G. VMware has now built that same type of cloud infrastructure for telco clouds right. so that as you move from 4G to 5G, we become that quintessential infrastructure for that transition. Vodafone saw that, redid a lot of their open source stack, and now 15 out of the many countries right. are running on VMware. We're partnering with companies like Ericsson for what's called network f- function virtualization. And similarly, AT&T is also working with us in the U.S. in areas like SD-WAN. So our goal is to get every telco, as they think about 4G to 5G, VMware VMware is the indispensable company that can help you in that transition as cloud infrastructure. Yeah, well, I, I thought it was compelling because I, I know that if you're just going to be uh, in one thing, in the networking, you have to also be in another because 5G is going to be huge. And I want people to understand that VMware is not a one-trick pony, that you're actually f- much bigger than that. And 5G is the holy grail for the next, maybe, what, five years? How long is it going to take to do the build-out? I think it's going to take several years, but as long as it takes, that if people could understand the agility comes from software. And one component you talked about is networking. Our networking business has gotten on fire. And the reason is because it's a software-defined. People get to invest right. in then optimize in their underlay inf- investing of, of hardware networking, but then optimize the overlay capabilities of networking. And that allows you to do things that you could never do in a data center before, like, for example, securing your data center, what's called micro-segmentation, expanding it into the branch with something called SD-WAN or into the cloud. Part of the reason we have such a special relationship with AWS is our NSX networking capability is second to none. And you also have great relationship with Dell, obviously. It's a very special relationship. And, you know, now post the Dell IPO, the economic interests of VMware and Dell are perfectly aligned. What's good for VMware is good for Dell. And many of these areas we talked about, like hyperconverged infrastructure or our mobile solution, Workspace ONE, now running on Dell laptops, is a perfect synergy opportunity for VMware and Dell to do well together. And that's the reason we've seen a really good expansion in our synergy business. We'll certainly hear about that. And just one last note, you've always talked to me about diversity and inclusion. Okay, and I know we have Michael Dell tomorrow. We'll talk about these issues. These are big issues. Uh, yesterday, the other day was Inter- International Women's Day, and we didn't do enough on it. You have been made a point of having women in senior levels, correct? Yeah, it's very important. I tweeted out on International right. Women's Day that in my uh, organization, four out of the six direct reports are women, 67%. And that's important because in tech, we don't do really well. 20, 30% of women, when women are 50% of society, 2 or 3% of African Americans, when African Americans are 11% of society, or Latinos, 20% of society. And we need to create role models, and I think it's really important. And that's what I wanted to exemplify in some of what I'm doing in my organization. But we've taken it a step further, even in, in what we're doing in India. We've now launched a program called Tara, which targets a lot of women who are coming back to the workforce, and we're going to help them code, teach them for free. 
And already in two months, we've had 2,000 people sign up for this program. And this is the type of commitment we want. If you're doing well, it's important for you to also do good. And that's one of the themes for us for 2019. We've got to talk about these issues. We haven't done enough of it in the years we've been on. I want to thank Sanjay Puni. He's VMware's chief operating officer and has done so much. You've got to follow him on Twitter, by the way, because he's inspirational. Bad Money is back after the break. telling you that there are a lot of reasons to feel more sanguine about this market. And tonight I've got one more. The dollar finally looks like it's poised to go lower. And that would be huge. I mean, just gigantic. Something that would cause analysts who cover the stocks of U.S.-based multinationals to raise numbers on everything from Procter & Gamble, PepsiCo to Apple and Alphabet. Over the last year, the greenback has steadily climbed higher, and that's been bad news for the stock market. Strong dollar punches many American companies in the face and then kicks them when they're down. First, it makes our exports more expensive versus foreign-made competition. And then for U.S. companies that over, operate overseas, it causes their foreign earnings to translate into far fewer greenbacks because the exchange rate's working against them. Now, there are benefits from a, a strong currency, too, but they're more like a mixed blessing. If you want to import something from overseas, it's totally cheaper. If you want to take a vacation to Europe, your money will go a lot further. You want to get a nice suit like this one uh, in Milan? Well, it's like buy one, get one over there. However... From the perspective of the broader U.S. economy, the strong greenback does more harm than good. Simple, okay? From the perspective of someone who has money in an index fund that mirrors the S&P 500, that strong dollar has been a serious negative. When the dollar weakens, though, suddenly our exports get more competitive. U.S.-based money nationals get a nice earnings boost from a more favorable exchange rate. And the stock market gets still one more reason to rally. Yes, we want, well, let's just say bulls want a weaker dollar. The question is, will we get one? Most people I deal with in this racket expect this dollar to trend ever higher during this period when the other our allies, well, even the Chinese, everyone's struggling. Tonight, we're going off the charts with the help of Carly Garner. She is a brilliant technician. Carly is the co-founder of DeCarly Trading and the author of Higher Probability Commodity Trading, which I have read, to get a better sense of what's going on here. And she believes the dollar, uh, this is gutsy cold, but she's been so right on so many things. She thinks the dollar's headed, headed lower. I was flabbergasted when I read this. Take a look at this super long-term monthly chart of both the S&P 500 and the U.S. dollar index, which measures the value of the greenback versus a basket of foreign currencies. Before we get into the nitty-gritty, Garner points out that the immediate relationship between the stock market and the dollar isn't always straightforward. I mean, the S&P can go higher even when we have a strong dollar because the green is the dollar, the S&P is up here. Uh, but over the long haul, there's a pretty powerful negative correlation. Okay? Now, after bottoming in January of last year, our currency has quietly been moving uh, toward higher and higher levels, levels that, according to Garner, have proved to be extreme and, most importantly, unsustainable, okay? Apart from a record-breaking rally in 2001-2002, dollar index has had very hard time breaking out above 100. So you got to look at this side to see the 100, okay? It's always been a, floor, a ceiling of resistance uh, for any meaningful stretch. Right now, it's at 97. So, you know, what I'm asking you to do is look at this kind of thing. You have to look at more than just that axis, right? Why does it matter? Because Garner noticed a pattern here. The stock market tends to ignore any strength, our current, uh, any strength of our currency right up until the dollar index begins to approach these same levels. In other words, the dollar and the S&P can move in the same direction for a while. But once the dollar index hits the mid to high 90s, investors start to worry about the negative impact on earnings, and that triggers a sell-off in stocks. Look at what happened in 2016 and 2017. Okay, so the green area. The dollar index surged in 2016, briefly spending some time over 100. All right, there we go. Again, you got to look at this axis. Uh, and the S&P 500 slowed to a standstill. 
All right, so you can see there's the standstill. Our strong currency wasn't the only thing causing stocks to stagnate, but it sure didn't help. In late 2016, though, the dollar peaked, and as it went lower over the course of 2017, well, the S&P rocketed. So you see the correlation there? It's really important that you know this because it, it's not it's kind of hidden from most people. Then last year, the greenback got stronger again. The dollars in the strong market, well, they had a lot of trouble getting higher, right? Remember that period? So why does Garner think we would finally get the weaker currency we desperately so need? Okay, check out the chart from an alpha called Moore's Research Center, which shows the seasonal patterns in the dollar index over the past 15 years. Look at this. Look at this. This is, a, this is where we are, people. Typically, the greenback has a tendency to peak in early March and then get slammed through April. Bingo! Or how about the weekly chart of the dollar index going back to 2013? You can see at a very hard time breaking out above 98. And even on rare occasions when that does happen, those breakouts do not last very long. Remember, that index, that uh, axis was on this side before. Now it's over here. You can see it just doesn't get through it. It means we've got a powerful ceiling of resistance keeping a lid on this thing. And no one's thinking about this other than Carly. If the dollar index can break out above 98.35, Garner says we'll likely try to test the next ceiling at 100. But she doesn't think it can break through that one. Plus, when you look at the Williams percentage R, which is an oscillator that measures overbought, oversold, it's an important momentum indicator. Well, just look at this. The dollar index is overbought, clearly, right? And it's come up too far too fast. So therefore, it might be due for a pullback, as it has been whenever this has happened. Okay, so we're really in the zone. Now, we also need to grapple with fundamentals here. There are legitimate reasons why the dollar's been so robust. I mean, compared to the rest of the developed world, the United States has a terrific economy, relatively higher interest rates. That's a textbook recipe for a strong currency as foreign investors exchange their euros or their yen for dollars so they can buy dollar-denominated assets like treasury bonds or U.S. stock or U.S. real estate. However, at this point, Garner believes that these bullish fundamentals are already baked into the dollar index. Of course, there's two sides to this. It's not just the dollar. It's also about every other currency out there. Remember, the dollar index measures the greenback against a basket of foreign currencies. And the euro represents about 60% of the basket. So I want you to take a look at the daily chart of the euro. Wow. Okay. When this goes up, the dollar goes down. All right, so you're looking at this. When this goes up, the dollar goes down. Unfortunately, the euro has been a real dog for ages. However, Garner points out that the European currency experienced a key reversal. It's hard to see. But it's right here. Key reversal on last Friday. On Thursday, the euro got pummeled on a bearish forecast for the ECB. Remember, that's Mayor Draghi. But this was also the day of before option expiration. That influenced it. Garner spotted a massive influx of selling on Thursday. And she thinks that this was about the options market rather than people making genuinely bearish bets against the euro. Sure enough, the darn thing bounced on Friday. And it's now supported by a nice floor of support at one, one at a dollar one twenty seven. If the euro manages to break out, she could see it go to one point one eight six and then maybe even one dollar and one two oh seven five is what we would say on the chart with the possibility of one dollar twenty two cents if, if we really get things rolling. In other words, she thinks this is really going to go. I mean, it would be rather staggering. Now, they may seem like small increments to you, but in the world of currency, very significant. Finally, there's, a, there's one that actually is mystifying a lot of people, which is the British pound in the news again today. Uh, since the Brexit vote in 2016, the pound has been in a kind of no man's land. I know this is hard to read, but you can see here's where we are. Uh, with Brexit right around the corner, presuming everything goes ahead on schedule, which is a big presumption, the pound is trading roughly in line with the levels it plummeted to right after the referendum. So you can see it never really came back. Okay, It's been pretty much flatline. Now, this is a very hard, uh, very hard to predict situation. But I think there's a real chance that the British Parliament can agree on any particular Brexit proposal. So they'll just keep kicking the can down the road. If that happens, the pound will be able to rally. And this lines up with some promising signs that Carter sees in this chart. 
So here's the bottom line. The stock market has been held back by the strong dollar. It just has conference call after conference call. It's really nauseating. But the charts is interpreted by Carly Garner taking the other side. Suggest the dollar could be peaking. That'd be amazing. That would be a major positive for your portfolio. Can I go to Ryan in Washington? Ryan. Jim, booyah. Booyah, Ryan. Really appreciate all the work you and your uh, wonderful team do over there. What a staff. An individual investor. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Uh, my question for you is, uh, with both a strong U.S. dollar and the Fed on pause right now, I'm looking to add some exposure to Brazil's emerging economy. Uh, would you recommend investing in this market? And if so, do you have a favorite stock pick? Uh, no, I am not. I mean, look, I happen to think that Latin America, I'm more bullish in Latin America than many of my colleagues. But uh, I take my life in my hands when so I mentioned Brazil. Brazil, as I said in a couple of my books, getting back to even... That's a trade. And I like to uh, mention, first of all, thank you for the comments, Ryan. Don't think I'm out of school, but I don't like to mention or I don't like to suggest trades on man money. I like to suggest investments, and I don't think Brazil's an investment. Let's go to Dave in New York. Dave. Jim, I'm new to your show, really enjoying it and doing my best to follow along. Hey, listen, I've never been invested in the stock market at all. My investments have always been in different types of real estate. However, I've recently liquidated some of my holdings, and I've got a significant amount of money to invest somewhere. I've noticed that you regularly suggest the first 10K of investment should be into an index fund. But regarding a much larger initial investment, should that index fund position also be larger? Should it be like some percentage of your total holdings? All right. Great question. All right. This fits perfectly into something that I am feeling passionate about, which is financial education, particularly an initiative called Invest in Your Invest in You. Ready, set, grow, which is part of our partnership with Acorns, which is the savings and investment investing app. I cannot tell you how important this stuff is. The answer is, is that you keep the 10,000 and you just keep. I want that to look. I want it to grow, grow, grow. I want the mad money portfolio to be dramatically smaller than your index portfolio. I know that hurts. I am based on stocks, but I am an index fund guy first. Thank you, late John Bogle. And let's pay attention to CBC plus Acorns for more financial knowledge. Okay, the market's been held back by the strong dollar, but the charts suggest that could be changing, at least according to Carly. She's alone, though, all right? She's alone. But I've learned that she's been right far more than wrong. Much more mad money ahead. Cooper may not be a household name. But it's certainly not uh, not coming out of nowhere. I'm sitting down with the CEO of Coupa to find out if today's drop cloud be a buying opportunity. The cloud's been tough. Then, more than just chips, I'm explaining what makes a semiconductor-led rally different from all the rallies and why you need to take note. And all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. to be a dead horse here. But as I told you before, the cloud-based software companies keep reporting these fabulous results. With a few notable exceptions, the once red-hot stocks then end up getting pulverized. It's a little bit crazy. I keep coming back to this point because any cloud stocks, because the cloud stocks are really the most important leadership group in this whole market. They led the whole market higher in January and February. Then they led us lower after the pattern emerged when started right when Workday reported a fantastic quarter and the stock went down. That's why we need them to start breaking that pattern, which brings me to Coupa Software, one of our cloud princes with a software platform that helps businesses identify cost savings. That's why they call themselves the sales force of expense management. Coupa reported last night in its story has played out of 
bit differently. While the company delivered an excellent top and bottom line, beat 45% subscription growth, management's earnings guidance came in somewhat higher. This earnings guidance, somewhat we could have expected for the next quarter in the full year. But what really matters to me is the farmer bullish revenue forecast. How come on, people own this stock for the revenue growth, not the earnings. Nobody wants to read a headline about downside earnings growth, though. Still, Coupa's stock held up remarkably well. When the market opened, the darn thing was up more than two bucks. Then it swiftly gave back those gains and finished the day just uh, down three bucks. Not a totally new narrative, as I've been saying. Still got a cloud stock going lower after a good quarter. But unlike Workday or Salesforce or ServiceNow, or Splunk, this one barely got dinged. Now, Coupa also hosted an analyst meeting earlier today. Let's take a closer look about what they said. Let's talk to Rob Bernstein, the chairman and CEO of Coupa Software, get a better sense of the quarter and his company's prospects. Mr. Bernstein, welcome back to Mad Money. Good to see you, sir. Great to be with you. Thank you. Have a seat. We've been talking about this pattern because... Frankly, these stocks have been the absolute best. And I want you to talk about how your stock has had remarkable growth, not just last year, but this year. And you just closed out fiscal year, uh, fiscal 2019 with the strongest financial performance yet. You had that great analyst meeting. Could you just give us some of the bullet points that you highlighted to the analysts today? Well, look, the bullet points have been the same for nearly a decade now in building this business. <clears throat> really strong growth, very careful management of sales and marketing expenditures, and continued leverage to the bottom line. And we feel like we're really just getting started with this business. You know, we've only penetrated less than 10% of the global 500, a global 1,000 or Fortune 500. And we're landing these big, big deals, and we're getting these customers live and getting them successful and driving a lot of value to them, which is what, what this is all about, Jim. Okay, so we've just recently profiled Shopify, one of our absolute favorites. That's a client of yours. And we've also had Lululemon on uh, a bunch of times. How do they make uh, save money using oh. Coupon? Well, well, they do a lot more than save money. They drive compliance, visibility, transaction flow through Coupa. But I'll tell you examples of some of the large-scale customers that we have. You look at a company that does uh, data center operations for us. They save more than half a million dollars on air filters through Coupa. We have a a manufacturing company that saved more than $5 million on freight, air and ocean freight. We have a retailer that saved more than $10 million, $10 million, Jim, on refrigerators through Coupon. Well, wait a I have a lot of companies that keep saying freight's bad, freight's bad. Freight. I mean, if you have that penetration uh, that's that small, a lot of these guys should be calling you. Well, a lot of them are calling us, are? And, that's okay. why, and that's why we're managing our way into the market. We're not pushing you know, huge marketing campaigns and massive outreach with salespeople all over the world. We're doing it in a managed way, and we're making sure each customer is getting live and successful. You know, the companies you named, the Shopify, uh, Peloton, Looker, some of these high-growth companies, they're growing with us. They're putting in these controls early on so they can have visibility to spend, and they can manage spend effectively for years and years to come. Well, I thought it was pretty interesting that some of these companies are saying, listen, we use Coupa Pay. We want to buy through Coupa Pay. In other words, they're just part of an ecosystem where they just kind of don't even want, they just want you embedded is what it sounds like. That's right. They came to us and they're saying, look, we spend through Coupa, we buy through Coupa. Why can't we also pay through Coupa? So we're giving them capabilities for doing that. We're streamlining the virtual credit card payment process. Now, instead of having one of those corporate cards that somebody holds somewhere and mm-hmm. makes purchases without visibility, we're running virtual cards through Coupa. You can go in, request the things you need, request the services you need, get a virtual credit card number right there in front of you, and make the payment. It's simple for the end user, and the company still has visibility to all the spending that's happening so they could continue to, to optimize those categories of spend. And you have good federal business, U.S. Postal Service. I mean, I, to me, that's a fantastic client. they got to wow. save. We're very excited about that, that customer of ours in federal. Now, over half a million 
employees or workers mm -hmm. at uh, the United States Postal Service. They're spending billions of dollars on everything from maintenance to operations to things like pest control, Jim. I mean, we're going to help them optimize all of that, get it to the right vendors, and help them save a lot of money. I mean, this is a, a very significant uh, deployment in federal government for us. Okay, so my uh, utility is National Grid, and they're a customer of yours, and I thought it was very interesting. You were integrated with Hannah from SAP. Now, I remember when SAP bought Ariba, uh, I guess about seven years ago. So you're able, even though Ariba is clearly a competitor when you look at what they do, you're able to work with SAP anyway? We work with SAP. We're certified by SAP. We integrate to multiple instances of ERP and many of our customers. We can implement connecting to Oracle. We implement connecting to virtually e any ERP out there. The version of truth as it pertains to spend is happening in Coupa. We're the system of interaction for spend, and we reconcile back down to a GL that happens to be SAP in some cases, some cases Oracle and others. Is that how you're able? I mean, you, did, you had 51% billings growth. I mean, now, Arebo is a gigantic company. Obviously, you're growing much faster than they are. You're headed toward a huge, huge revenue growth, ultimately. Well, we're growing rapidly, but also growing thoughtfully. We're making yeah. sure that each and every customer is getting measurable value from work with us, and they grow that value. We're not a products company at all, Jim. We're a value-as-a-service company. Right. We offer value through our technology platform and our best practices with our customers. I Just one last thing. BSM to me is Bar San Miguel, but BSM for you is the business spend platform. And that's really what we have to learn. If you're going to own the stock, you have to learn about the platform, correct? That's exactly right. All right. Well, you tell a great story because you have a great story. That is Rob Bernstein, CEO of Coupa Software. Guys, this one is down a few bucks from where it should be. And I think it's going to have many, many years. You heard about where in its infancy, total adjustable market here is gigantic. Their money's back in for the break. It is time! It's time for the lightning round! And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Skiing! Daddy! Time for the lightning round! We're going to start with Chris. It matches Chris! Hey, Jim. How you doing? I am doing well. How about you? I'm good. I got a Brady Booyah for you from Boston. I like Boston. Well, you used to root for the teams. What's going on? Hey, um... I bought Rebocorp back in August when it was down 40%. Okay. And uh, I've been holding on to it. I wrote it down into the 50s, and I doubled down on it at 53. Yeah, eh, I'm not a fan. But I, I, I'm just not a fan. What can I tell you? Uh, I just feel like it's a dice roll. I'm recommending Alibaba. That's it. Let's go to Rob in Kentucky, Rob. King James, my man. Yo, yo. <laughs> A jumbo 145th Kentucky Derby, ba 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 booyah! I like that. Churchill Downs, good stock. What's going on? From the bluegrass state of fast women and beautiful horses, I have a position in Hannon Armstrong Sustainable Infrastructure, ticker H A S I, which is close to its 52-week high and bountifully right. 5.4%. I have to do work. I do not know that. It's a uh, you know it's a close fund. I don't know what they're in. I will find out if I can and come back. I need to go to Jane in New York. Jane. Hey, Jim. How are you? Boo you to you. <laughs> Absolutely. First time caller from Rockaway, Queens, New York. Gotcha. Um, I was asking about this AeroVironment, AVAV. I thought it was a good quarter. There's constantly shorts in this thing. The, uh, the drone business is good. A lot of the uh, defense stocks are down. People didn't like the federal budget. 
uh, for the defense stocks, but I think you're fine, Aero Environment, ABAB. Let's go to Eric in Massachusetts. Eric. Hey, Jim. How we doing? Good. How about you? Uh, my stock, oh, I'm doing fantastic. My stock is NVTA, symbol NVTA. Genetic information companies, uh, we've been recommending them for spec only, but we do recommend them. We think there's a lot to like. Remember, we had Vivo on. I heard, heard a lot of good things. We've been listening to a lot of cloud-based companies that do stuff, including, by the way, Charles River Labs, not cloud-based, but they do a lot of the uh, the technical work. I like this group. Clyde in California. Clyde. Yes. Hi, Jim. I've been holding Schwab in my IRA for a couple of years. Right. It was doing well, and now it's a dog. What would you I wouldn't give a good about it because I'm generally uh, bullish for 2019, not bearish, and therefore it would be ill-advised for me to tell you to dump the stock here. Let's go to Jamie in Missouri. Jamie. We are from KC, the disc golf capital of Midwest. And uh, thanks for all your investing insight over the last 14 years. I'm looking at format technology. I like it. It's renewable energy. I've liked this company for absolutely forever. I know it hasn't done that much lately, but I do like it very much. And that, ladies and gentlemen, inclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Why do we like a rally led by the semiconductor stocks like the rally we're having right now? What makes them a better leadership group than, say, the transports, which were down 10 straight days in a row? Or the healthcare stocks, maybe the industrials or banks? Simple. These days, the semiconductor companies have their tentacles in everything. Now, I often tell you that housing punches above its weight when we talk about the economy. If housing's strong, then the strength might spread to banks and retail. These days, in the new global economy dominated by data, the semiconductor stocks punch well above their weight just like housing. For a long time, these stocks had led us higher. You had NVIDIA on the faster-growing side, Micron on the commodity side, Broadcom on the acquisitive side, Skyworks Solutions on the cell phone side, NXP Semi on the auto side, and Lamb Research on the capital equipment side. That's a lot of sides. But one by one, these groups come to the semiconductor drought that started last spring. And as each side peaked, it left a ton of detritus on the roadside. Skyworks and Lamb Research started rolling over First, Skyworks has a lot of exposure to China, so it began to crater when the trade war took off. Then Broadcom, which had been trying to buy Qualcomm, the brains behind so much of what's in your cell phone, gave up on its takeover attempt after U.S. regulators blocked the the deal. Uh, The same thing happened to Qualcomm when Chinese regulators prevented them from buying NXP Semi. At the same time, Lamb Research began the process of of shedding points uh, as those who know the group smelled a peak, one that Lamb itself confirmed in October as a pause in orders. Micron was brutal. The company had been saying right up into the spring peak that demand for DRAMs remained strong, even as flash memory had peaked. Micron's a commodity chip maker, but management kept saying that these new DRAMs were more sophisticated, harder to make. Turns out these still are commodity chips, and there were too many of them. As Micron began that hideous decline, it only had saw its stock cut in half by the end of last year. That one really decked a lot of hedge funds. Then Broadcom astonished the world by acquiring not a semiconductor company, but a pure software company, CA, that works with big old hardware. That was a total comeuppance to the entire semi-industry that had been targeted forever by these guys. And it also didn't need approval from Chinese regulars. Finally, NVIDIA blew up in spectacular fashion. Signaling weakness in gaming, artificial intelligence, and the data center. Something that also hit AMD. But AMD was never loved the way NVIDIA was loved. By the way, AMD, talk about a comeback. It's starting now. 
So we have, let's see, no more deals. Declining demand for auto chips. Strangling by China that includes cell phone chips. Overwhelming glut of commodity chips. And peaking in data center and gaming. The whole gamut of chip makers seem to be painting a picture of a worldwide slowdown. And in every end market, coupled with an inability to consolidate an overpopulated group, we had pain. Then yesterday, everything changes. Everything. First, we learned that NVIDIA is buying Mellanox, okay? With this deal, NVIDIA is doubling down on the data center and artificial intelligence, while at the same time, defying worries that China will block the transaction. Signaling that the thought and the relations could be for real, and I've got to tell you, it also signals that you don't want to be betting against the data center. Apple catches an upgrade based on part on the hope that the inventory glut in the chips may be gone, which could mean Apple's buying chips again in large numbers. We don't know. But that's what the analyst said. Sure, we don't have any auto ship. There's no turn. But I, I wouldn't want to bet against NXP Semi. And if commodity inventory heaviness is gone, yeah, well, that means demand must be better than expected for Micron and Lamb. And remember, the semis punch above their weight. Put it all together, and these stocks now paint a picture of a stronger global economy, coupled with a resurgence in the data center, and even a more positive view of the trade talks with China. Maybe even autos can come back. I doubt gaming chips are so horrible now that they can keep weighing down the rest of the mosaic, including NVIDIA and AMD. I know that's a couple... That's a couple of research those can lift an entire market. It seems fanciful, but it's true. As so many stocks are caught up in these end markets that now seem to be more solid than most people think. So now what happens? Simple. The semiconductor stocks have changed the market's perception to the positive. You know what? I buy any of the ones I just mentioned anytime they pull back. Stick with Kramer. The other day when CVS, that's Charlie Victor Sam, was down at 52, I bemoaned that this one was so bad I couldn't even say the name. I whispered it. It's owned by my charitable trust, which you can follow along at actionlearnersplus.com club. And I knew that I had been wrong. I don't like to say I'm early been wrong. But tonight, Bernstein comes out, recommends it with a $76 price target. And there were two insiders, each who plunked down $500,000 to buy stock, including Dave Dorman, who's an old friend whom I've known for years, who does not throw his money around idly. Now, the Bernstein piece was not necessarily complimentary of the pharmacy business, but it did like the Aetna business. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise I'd find it just for you right here on Mid Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow. At Fidelity, online U.S. stock and ETF trades are commission-free. $0 commission for online retail Fidelity account U.S. equity and ETF trades. Sell order assessment fee in some account types and securities excluded. See Fidelity.com slash commissions. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE SIPC.